Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And on today's episode, I got my friend Seth Dubois here to talk all things Silk Road Mountain Race. The Silk Road is in its fourth iteration. It started in 2018, and this year was their biggest year yet. Like many of you, this race has captivated my attention An area of the world that was previously unknown to me is now very much in my sights. The Silk Road boasts 1,120 miles and 100,000 feet of climbing. The race starts at midnight, and the highest pass is Gyptic Pass, which is 13,730 feet. Now, I don't know who's in charge of ranking these races in terms of toughness, but there is definitely an argument to be made that Silk Road is at the top of that list. The attrition rate for this race is over 50%. It depends on the year, but any way you slice it, just completing this route is an absolute victory. My guest today, Seth, was the 37th place finisher and he didn't finish without his own trials and tribulations his own internal battle and his battle with illness and a slight run-in with some locals that could have gone a different direction i first met seth whenever he reached out to me about coming down to the East Texas Showdown to make a film about our 2022 race, which he did, and that is available now and easy to find. You can go to his YouTube channel, which is Experience by Bike, and you can find that if you want to check that out. Also there, you can see the other two films that he's done, which are excellent and also worth a watch. I really appreciate Seth coming on the podcast. I am obsessed with this race like many of you are, and it was an absolute pleasure to listen to his story about his experience on this year's Silk Road Mountain Race. But before we get into it, let me make a quick announcement about my race, another epic, epic race. You got the Tour Divide, you got Silk Road, and you got East Texas Showdown. Okay, maybe we don't belong in that list exactly, but I do have an important announcement. This past Friday, we opened registration to 150 souls, and it sold out in four hours, which shocked me and many of you. Um, Last year, we opened it up to 100 and sold out in four days, which was also incredible, but I don't know if anybody really expected this year to sell out so quickly. We are beyond grateful and humbled and surprised uh, by the interest in our little event here out in East Texas, and we have received countless emails and messages from people who weren't able to register because they didn't realize it was going to sell out so quickly or they were working and couldn't get away or or whatever it may be. And so here is what we're going to do. You still have a chance. If you want to get into this year's East Texas showdown, slowdown, or lowdown, we are opening up 36 more spots. So if you're interested, here's what you need to know. 
This Saturday, September 10th at 2 p.m., registration will go live over at bikereg.com for 12 spots in each category. So we're going to open up 12 in the showdown, 12 in the lowdown, and 12 in the slowdown. Now, it's important to note that you can switch categories after you register. So if you're gunning for the showdown and they're all filled, grab whatever is available and we can switch your category after you're, you are registered. After this, there will be no more spots. We will open up a waiting list and there may be some opportunities to get in that way. But as far as guaranteed spots, this is your last chance. We are limited by our venue, by permitting, and by insurance. So we're opening up 36 more and then that's it. So if you want in, this is your chance. Saturday, September 10th at 2 p.m. Um, you can go to the Bikes for Death website and we have a link there at the very top for the East Texas Showdown where you can learn everything you need to know. You can also just go to bikereg.com and type in East Texas Showdown. But no matter what you do, please be advised that if you want in, be ready, be fast, because these last 36 spots are gonna go fast. Before we get to today's episode, let's take a minute to thank the people that made it possible, starting with our latest batch of patrons. And as a reminder, Hefe Bike is matching patron donations for a limited time. So now is a great time to sign up as a supporting member of the podcast. And a huge shout out to Hefe Bike for their support. If you'd like to say thank you to them and show them some e-commerce love, you can find them over at hefe.bike. All right, our newest batch of patrons are Tim Lafferty, Matthew Annabelle, Cedar Blanchard, Christopher Bartling, Jeff Hen, and Christian Meinke. Thank y'all so much for signing up to support the podcast. Again, all of your contributions were doubled by Hefe Bike. Big shout out to y'all for signing up and to Hefe for doubling up your contributions. If you would like to get in on the action, you can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes for death. Today's episode is also brought to us by Ombra's sunglasses, the revolutionary sunglasses that don't have arms. They have a lanyard that is super comfortable and convenient. They're always around your neck. You never have to lose them. And never again will you be asking your mom where your sunglasses are. You've seen these sunglasses on the face of very important bikepacking influencers like John Watson, Sarah Swallow, and yours truly. And if you'd like to get yourself a pair, Umbras wants to make it super easy for Bikes for Death listeners. If you use the code BOD20 at checkout, you will get $20 off your order and they will send Bikes for Death a check for $20 which is absolutely incredible. And if you would like to take advantage of this offer, all you got to do is go to ombras.com. That's O-M-B-R-A-Z.com. Use the code BOD20 at checkout. Get yourself a $20 discount and send $20 to your favorite podcast. 
All right, and we'd like to make another announcement. I got Shane here to talk to us about the upcoming Red Granite Grinder. All right, everybody, we got Shane Hits back on the Bikes for Death podcast. Shane, welcome back. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? Good. Well, we're going to talk more about the Red Granite Grinder, which is your race coming up this October. Uh, But before we get into it, let's just remind people real quick that you and I recorded an entire episode, episode 125 recently, all about Wisconsin bikepacking and gravel grinding. And we talk, I mean, we go into good detail about the Red Grinder um, for a good 30 minutes there. So for anybody who's interested in more details, that's an excellent resource to check out. But for people who haven't had a chance to check out that episode yet, Tell us, what is the Red Granite Grinder? The Red Granite Grinder is a gravel race, but I do combine a lot of private land segments. So it um, draws from my experience with bikepacking. And you'll see that on the course with all the off-road segments and single track. Nice. Yeah. I mean, one of the cool things that you've done that I really like is you've gotten private landowner access. So people who ride these routes, you're going to be on roads that you you won't be able to ride at any other time other than going on this race, which is a huge bonus and a huge credit to you as a race director and your team over there. I know that y'all work together tightly to make these things happen. When and where is this race? This uh, race is on October 15th and it's in Wausau, Wisconsin. So it's directly in the middle of the state. Yeah. And what options are available to people? You have quite a few. Yeah, we have a 50 mile ride or race and an 85 mile race and 144 and a 12 mile kids race. And are those all on the same day? Yeah, they're all on the same day. So the uh, 50, 85 and 144 start at seven in the morning and the 12 mile is at three in the afternoon. Oh, okay. Very good. And I guess we should let people know that you and I are going to be riding in one of the pre-race events that y'all have going on, a little group ride for people who want to come out and say hi to you and get some local Wisconsin knowledge or come out and uh, say hi to me all the way from Texas. Um, When are we going to be doing that? So we have two rides. We have one on Thursday and we have one on Friday, the uh, days before the race. So the, the one on Thursday is a little bit longer. That's a 60-mile ride. And the one on Friday is an easy spin. It's a 25-mile ride. And they're both on like 90% gravel. Oh, nice. And I believe you and I are doing the 25-mile ride um, as a group ride. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I've already had some people contact me and tell me that they're coming out just to say hi. So that'll be pretty cool. Now, the the pre-rides, those uh, 25 and 60-mile options, do you have to register for the race to do those? Or are those free, or how does that work? Those are free to anybody. So we want to build more of a community around this event and draw people from in the community and to do those gravel rides. And so anybody can come out and do those. I think that's freaking awesome. So uh, anybody who's in the area should come out and, and ride those routes. Come say hi, even if you can't do the race. Tell me, Shane, what is something that you think makes the Red Granite Grinder special? For sure, it's got to be the private land sections because I don't know of any races that are like that. And I did add some more private land sections this year, which we're really excited about. So that adds a little bit extra um, toughness to it. And then we have some hills 
at the beginning, you're going to be climbing 800 feet of Rib Mountain and over Rib Mountain. Those trails are not accessible any other time of the year. And then towards the end of the course is Billy Goat Hills. Those are some tough hills for Wisconsin. Um, I think people coming here will be really surprised at how steep our hills are. Hey, but you always get the joy of going down the other side. So, you know, there's always a payoff there. So uh, if people are ready to register, where can they go to find out more information? Ironbowl.org. Perfect. And we will include that in the show notes as well. Again, remember to go check out episode 125 with Shane here. We dive deep into all things red granite grinder and bikepacking in Wisconsin. Thanks for coming on, Shane. Thanks so much, Patrick. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. The bills have been paid. The lights are on for one more week. And now it is time to get to my interview with my good friend, Seth Dubois, all the way from Kyrgyzstan to tell us about his recent experience at the Silk Road Mountain Race. But before we get into it, let's have Miles Arbor kick it off with the Bikes or Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You let that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Is your name Seth Dubois? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> First question. You're fresh off the Silk Road Mountain Race. Uh, what got beat up worse, you or your bike? Oh, I would definitely say me. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> the bike was it operated flawlessly. It was pretty amazing. Really? Yeah, that's mm -hmm. amazing. Because you know, if you watch any of the films, the any anything they put out about um, the Silk Road, you're seeing a lot of bike destruction. So a lot of flat tires, a lot of a lot of mechanicals, broken bikes, chains are an issue. Um, I do want to talk about your setup, so we'll we'll pause on your setup for a moment. And, sure. Uh, mm -hmm. But but how are how are you feeling then? Are you recovering? I'm recovering pretty well. Um, I'm I'm sleeping a lot and I'm eating a lot still. <laughs> when did you finish? And so today is Wednesday, right? Today's Wednesday. Yeah. Yep. The thirtieth or something. Thirty first. Yeah, Wednesday the thirty first. Do you know when you finished and when you got back to America? Yeah, I think uh, so. The race started on the on the twelfth, and then I finished on. Um, gosh, I think it was, I think it was a Wednesday 23rd, um, because it was just over 11 days. And, uh, so I finished on a Wednesday. Um, was it a Wednesday? Yeah. I, I believe I finished on a Wednesday and then I flew back to the U S on Saturday. Um, so I've been here for, uh, for like half a week now. Okay. So, yeah. And no uh, real lingering like pains or anything, mostly just tired and hungry? Tired and hungry. Um, I have numb numb toes. My big toes are numb. My uh, my like ring finger and 
pinky fingers are numb. Um, and I've got a lot of flaky skin from, <laughs> from getting sunburned. <laughs> oh, bad sunburn, <laughs> like third degree, second degree. Do you know? Um, not too bad. I was wearing, I was wearing like UV arm sleeves most of the time, but there were a couple days where I decided not to. And, uh, um, just didn't apply enough sunscreen and, and that got me along with my nose. Yeah. Oh, your nose looks good right now. You don't have to cut it off yet. Yeah. <laughs> You've done some, you know, longer events before. Uh, do you, do you, do you normally have like hand issues and, and, you know, the foot kind of, I mean, that, that's pretty normal stuff for most people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I I'd say anything over like two to three days. Um, I get the numbness and it, and it lasts for like a couple weeks to a month or so. Yeah. Well, so for the listeners, you just uh, got back from Silk Road Mountain Bike Mount. It's not Mountain Bike Race. I thought it was Mountain Bike Race up until I started <laughs> researching for this show, and I just never paid attention. But it's it's Silk Road Mountain Race, uh, so I might have to correct myself a couple times. But um, I believe you got thirty first place, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thirty seventh. I think that's what my notes say. Thirty seventh place. Um, which is freaking badass, man. Like the whole idea of going for me, Silk Road, and I think for a lot of people is really exciting. It's new. It's got a great lot of media around it. Um, they've done just a great job from a spectator's point of view of putting on a great event. Um, I know you. You came to the showdown. You did a film, and I was watching your dot the whole time. Uh, so I wanted to hear about Silk Road, man. I'm I'm excited, and I think a lot of people are pretty interested in Silk Road. I mean, they got you all the way over there, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I appreciate it. It was, um, I, to me, I think of it kind of like the, it's almost like this plus tour divide are, are kind of like, you know, like the Super Bowl of the sport in a way. Um, it's, it's something that's, you know, kind of high on the list for, for most people and just incredibly intriguing. Um, so, you know, that certainly drew me, like you mentioned, the, the media is really cool. They have awesome coverage for participants, which or for spectators, which is, uh, obviously a huge bonus as well. Yeah. Yeah. They, I was thinking that same thing. I was looking at it like this. I wonder for like, um, like we, yeah, we have the tour divide. And then if we're going over to like that other land mass, uh, that, you know, they have Silk Road and it is kind of those two races tour divide is the one that would attract people to go through great links, logistically flying and all the things mm -hmm. that are involved with coming to a new country you might not know the language, but at the same time, Silk Road is getting people from America and all over really drawing in people from all over to go to a place that I guarantee 99% of the people that race in it, if you had asked them, where is Kyrgyzstan on a map, they couldn't have pointed it out. But that hasn't prevented them from having a huge draw. It's And this is their third or fourth year? Uh, that's, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I think, I think um, it's their third. Yeah. I think it's a skipping COVID thing. There was, is what I, right. Yep, exactly. I think that's what, what the deal is. But it's their third or fourth year, and they've uh, just garnered a mass 
uh, amount of followers and attention and participants from all over the world. And um, I'm not going to lie. They got me. I'm super interested in it. Um, I am a thousand percent going to reach out to the race organizers and see if I can be there next year on their media team or just, oh, if, they awesome. mind, just if they mind me going because I want to be there. Um, I don't want to race it. I would tour it, you know, if I had like three weeks, but uh, it looks brutal, man. It looks absolutely brutal. But uh, so before we get into all the Silk Road talk, let's just get to know you for just a second. Um, I don't think you're from Kyrgyzstan. I think you're from, or you live in <laughs> Portland right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know you Portland, live in Oregon. Portland. Are you? Is that where you're from? Uh, originally from Albany, New York. Oh wow! On the other side, what brought you to uh, Portland and the and Oregon? Yeah, I moved out. Uh, I graduated college in in 2010, and then um, I was looking to move to the West Coast. Uh, I was really interested in like Colorado or Arizona. Um, I spent a lot of years running competitively, and so the West Coast interested me for that reason because I was looking to to do do marathon running competitively. Um, but a, a good friend of mine that I was training with in in college, um, he was living in Corvallis, where they had kind of like a post-collegiate, um, marathon development team. And he was like, Hey man, I know you're interested in moving to the West coast. Uh, consider Oregon coming to Corvallis. We can split expenses. And, uh, um, so that, that was intriguing enough for me to, to move out. And I think it was November, 2010. Um, and, uh, yeah, I lived in Corvallis for about five or six years. And then I met some friends in Portland and I was like, Oh, Portland's a really cool city. Um, so moved to Portland and I've been here for over five years now. Nice. So, you know, Emily, uh, that works for bikes or death. A lot of people might hear her name pop up, but you got to meet her at the showdown. Uh, she and I were just on the phone, uh, talking two days ago and we were talking about places we would want to live. And when we were talking about Oregon being, I, and truth, the, you know, the reality is I've never been to Oregon. Uh, I've only seen pictures, but I know y'all got the ocean. You've got Portland. So you got like a dope big city with cycling infrastructure and all the good things that come with a big city. But then you have the desert, you have the mountains, you have the beach. I mean, it's all like right there. So is is Portland, Oregon, like one of the best places to live, you think? Like, uh, should I move there too? <laughs> <laughs> I'd highly recommend it. Um, yeah, I love it. I love being Portland's a, it's a nice bonus because, um, it's relatively centrally located. Um, I mean, it's not central Oregon, but there's a lot of, a lot of bonuses to, to being in Portland. Like, like you mentioned, the coast is really close. Um, when I moved out here five years after I moved out here, my mom moved out here and she moved to the coast. So now I have family that's like two hours away, right on the coast. Um, we've got Bend close by, which is kind of like high desert mountain area. Um, and then there's just a lot of awesome gravel riding within like two hours. And then mountains like Mount Hood. Um, is it expensive to live there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's the downfall for sure. That's the bummer. <laughs> I'm back to Arkansas. It's cheap there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great trails I, there, just, I hear. Yeah. No, I mean, the the outdoor wreck in Arkansas is amazing. But um, 
man, that Oregon, it just seems like it, it really does have a little bit of everything. I don't know if I'd, I'd leave either if I were you. So I, I know that you do a lot in the bike industry. That's how I'm aware of you. Um, I don't know if you actually have a, 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 you know, nine to five job or whatever, like is bike packing and everything your full-time gig or, or, or what? No, that'd be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely kind of the end goal. Um, you know, whether it be like, uh, media involved, um, photography, videography side of things. Uh, but yeah, right now I work for, for cash app. Um, Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I, I work in the, the anti-money laundering side of things. Okay. What, <laughs> what degree or expertise do you need to do that job? Um, expertise is for me, it was, it was mostly in the banking industry. Um, I was, I was in working in credit unions for a little over five years. Um, and then that kind of like compliance aspect got me into, into working for, for FinTech. Um, in terms of degree, I've, I have a degree in exercise science. So that was, wasn't applicable at all. (laughs) Whoa. That is so crazy. That seems like a, like a pretty important job. I mean, you're fighting money laundering for a very big, well-known money app. Um, but you don't have like a degree in it. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I think it's pretty cool how I kind of landed into it. Um, I was, when I moved to Corvallis, I was looking at like physical therapy assistant jobs and, uh, there was nothing available. And, and I found my way into being a a bank teller. Um, and then from there, I just kind of went into, to being a loan officer and underwriter and, um, yeah, I find myself, found myself here. Uh, wow. That's wild, man. It's so interesting. Like my perception of you is like, you just do bikes, you go and (laughs) film other bike races, you do a podcast, you write articles, you, you know, take pictures. I mean, like that's, that is my outside perspective of you. I would have no idea that you're, yeah, you're, you're doing that. So you're doing a good job fooling me. Yeah, <laughs> but it, I think I always, I always think it's interesting because it's like, man, it's always impressive how much stuff people do. I mean, if you have a full time job, I know you have right. a partner. Yeah. I know, you know, I know that you do a lot of uh, media projects, and you're also doing your own races, which means you're training for those things. Like, you're probably pretty busy. Uh, I'm guessing you don't sit still very, very often or very frequently. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Um, I'm, I'm super fortunate where it's a, like, it's a hundred percent remote job. So, um, it gives me a lot of flexibility and I can kind of make my own schedule. So, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for that, allowing me to, to do these other projects and, and races. So you're like the Frank Abernathy of cash app. Oh wait, no, but you're the Frank <laughs> Abernathy after he became good, like, <laughs> and, and started working for the FBI or whatever. Yeah, I can't say I'm as good as him, but I'll uh, take it. Maybe you're better. Maybe you're better. You don't know. <laughs> Unders- undiscovered talent. The calls will come in after this podcast. Yeah, uh, it works for me. <laughs> so Experience by Bike, that's that's your company, your brand. Uh, and people might also be familiar with that through some of your, uh, yeah, some of the work you've done. What What is Experience by Bike for people who don't know? And uh, yeah, what is Experience by Bike? Yeah, good question. Um, I'd say Thanks. it's mostly <laughs> it. It started off. Um, I was just really interested in in kind of doing a bike packing podcast. Um, 
that was a couple of years ago. And, uh, so, so I started experience by bike as a podcast and probably got like 14 or 15 episodes in before it, um, fizzled a little bit. I haven't, I haven't had, had an episode for over a year. Um, but I'd say it's, it's more of kind of like my, uh, kind of like media production side of things. Um, because I've been doing the, like the, the, um, the film work for about a year and a half now, um, where I've made three short documentaries about bikepacking races. Um, and I launched a, a YouTube video or a YouTube channel experienced by bike, um, where I'm posting those videos. So I'd say now at this point, it's more like, it's more, um, more visual media focused with the the YouTube channel. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, obviously as a podcaster, what, I mean, you're still doing media, you're still creating content, you're still telling stories, but you're doing it in a visual way. Is there a reason that you made that transition? Um, I would say, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, all right. I Maybe won't, I won't keep time saying that's and... a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say all of them are good questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> won't hurt my feelings. But uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it's just a time. I mean, your time probably is limited. Video projects are huge. I, I don't. I don't know. I'm interested in, in, uh, in kind of like experimenting with all different types of types of, um, forms of media or mediums. Um, so I tried podcasting. Uh, I do enjoy it. Uh, I, I am kind of interested in, in getting back into it a little bit. Um, but the, the video side of things really interests me, uh, because my, one of my big, uh, passions is, is photography and, and videography in general. So, um, I think, when I first started the podcast, my my thought process was, I when I started learning about bikepacking, um, I kind of just like consumed everything I could in regards to um, articles, interviews, uh, YouTube videos, podcast episodes. So I was like, you know, I'd I'd like to kind of um, kind of give back in a way um, by by providing my own content and. I chose to do a podcast where, um, where I was, I was pretty new to bikepacking. And so I wanted to interview people who, who were more experienced and, and get input from them, um, their experiences of, of, you know, bikepacking. And, uh, so that's what got me into the podcast side of things. Um, but yeah, I'd say just in terms of general interest, uh, the photography and videography side of things is really kind of where my like heart and passion lay. So it kind of just like transferred over there. Yeah. Well, if anybody is interested, I think you did 17 or 18 episodes and they're still on iTunes and, um, yeah, we're worth a listen. If you run out of bikes for death to listen to, you can go uh, check those out. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, of course, man. Uh, yeah, there's a there's yeah there's a lot of people dying for more bike pack. I mean, you were one of them, and you created content. I was one of them, and I created content. I mean, uh, there's a lot of interest uh, in in these stories. So um, yeah, you got some. You could definitely have some good interviews. You got Jenny Tuff was the last last one you done, and I I need to get yeah. her. I'd like to. I, I can't assume she's going to come on, but I'd love to have her on sometime. Oh yeah, um, she's awesome. Yeah. So I was surprised on your website that you didn't actually link it to your YouTube and any of your, uh, your media, your, um, your videos that you've done. Have you just been busy or, or are you trying to keep those two separate? 
Oh no, it's just super dated. I haven't, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I haven't touched it in like a year and a half. <laughs> okay. All right. So I wanted to point people to a good place to find the films that you've done. You said you've done three so far. You've done mine. And then what are the other two that you've done? Yeah, I did one on um on The Big Lonely. That was my my first film. And that's a, a bike packing race in Oregon that's about 350 miles. Uh that's in Bend. Um, so I did that one and then I did a, a video about the race that I put on, uh, which is called the Odyssey of the Valley of the Giants, um, which is also in Oregon, mainly in, uh, in like the Salem Tillamook area. Um, also about 350 miles. Uh, so those are, yeah, those are on my, the YouTube channel experience by bike. What is the difference between your route and the big lonely? They're both similar and, um, do you, like the area ride and and the distance um yeah what's the difference there the difference is um so the big lonely is in central oregon uh where it's where it's a lot more kind of like high desert um it occurs in i think it's in october and so it's uh it gets a little colder um towards towards the uh the latter end of the race because they're um, you climb a, a pretty big mountain. So there have been, I think last year there, there've been instances of snow. Um, it's also at elevation, I think between like four to 8,000 feet. And then for mine, um, being that it's in Salem and Tillamook, it's, it's more kind of sea level. Um, excuse me, uh, a lot more, a lot more, um, focused on, on like gravel roads uh, gravel forest roads, um, that lead out to the, the Oregon coast. Um, so it's a little bit more like coastal, uh, you're going to probably going to get a lot more rain <laughs> than you will in central Oregon. Um, so it, they're kind of just like different flavors. You had me until the rain. Yeah. Yeah. This past year was absolutely horrible. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty cool. You went and covered uh Jesse's event and did he race in yours? Um, nope. He hasn't raced in mine yet. Uh, he needs to get out there. I need to get out there. I should come. I was trying to decide which one I, I think, uh, we'll do yours and I'll just bring an umbrella. It'll be fine. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> one of so those umbrella hats. Yeah. <laughs> but we need to invent the umbrella bike helmet. That would, that would be the next <laughs> bestseller. You got the camp and go slow rattlesnake tape and then the bikes are death bike helmet umbrella. I mean, you just oh, can't man. Beat Yeah, that. definitely. <laughs> <laughs> plug plug your event, man. Plug your race. Uh, when is it? And yeah, when is it? Yeah, um, odysseyofthevog.com. That's the website. Um, it's typically occurs during Memorial Day weekend. And uh, yeah, it's we've had this will this will be the third year. Uh, me and my my good friend Ben Handrich were the the race directors of it. Um, so it's an awesome event. It's kind of, we, we like to have it more, uh, you know, community focused where, um, it starts at a location where a lot, where people can camp out, um, camp out the night before we've got a, we typically have a, a raffle, um, that acts as a, a fundraiser for the Oregon timber trail, um, which is an association that, that focuses on, on creating a lot of beautiful single track trails throughout Oregon. Um, and, yeah, it's it's a it's a fun event. It's it's pretty challenging. Um, I think 350 miles typically with just over 30,000 feet of elevation gain. Uh, the climbs are long, steep, and uh, pretty loose gravel. So 
if you're if you're looking for a challenge and and looking to potentially get wet then <laughs> it's a good event <laughs> how many friends are you going to be challenging yourself with and getting wet with um i think i'd say the the past two years it's it's been about 20 to 40 people um typically the finish rate has been around 50 percent, if i remember correctly oh wow yeah so it's it's definitely challenging um yeah, that's surprising. I, the way you described yeah. it at first, and it seemed too challenging. Um, but what 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 is the challenging aspect? I mean, loose gravel, some rain. Like, what, mm-hmm. what what's making it a challenge? I mean, not to say. I mean, obviously, the dis. I, all of it is hard. I'm not trying to downplay it, but <laughs> you know, a fifty. You know, like the Silk Road had about a fifty percent uh, attrition rate, and and right. yours as well. So, I mean, that's pretty high. Yeah, I think this this year it was most mostly attributed to the rain. Um, I, I think that, uh, it's, it's easy to, I don't believe everybody was, uh, people were prepared enough just for, um, for the, like the density of rain that comes on the coast. Um, so by, by day one, there are a lot of people that were that, you know, their gear was just like completely soaked through. Um, and I think that that had a, uh, that played a major factor. Yeah. Well, we saw from the first East Texas showdown what rain will do to yeah people's spirits and to their bikes. It's a destructive force. That's cool. I'd like to, I I think I sh- I'd like to make it out to yours. I so far away, but you already know that. But um, you've been to mine. I think I should. <laughs> I think I should come and check yours out. Yeah, you've got a place to stay. Oh, sweet. Yeah, on the side of a gravel road, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. What was the transition for you from running into cycling mm-hmm. or bikepacking? Were you always a cyclist? What, give us the highlights on your introduction to bikepacking in this crazy world of Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, I um, I was yeah, I ran competitively through like middle school, high school, college, and um, I was always pretty injury prone. Uh, largely, my both my Achilles. Um, I always got pretty bad Achilles tendonitis, and I've got. Uh, a good amount of scar tissue that developed on both of them. So I transitioned to not really transis- transitioned, but I started uh, cross training via cycling around my junior senior year of college. Um, and there's this there's this one ride I did uh, that was about sixty miles. It was um, it was the longest I'd ever gone. Uh, prior to that, I was doing maybe like one or two hour rides, and so my team had all left for a meet and that weekend I was like, all right, I'm going to go ride around this lake, uh, near my college and 60 or 70 mile miles. And it was just like, it was just incredibly freeing to me. Um, I was like, holy cow, I can, I can go this distance on my own, just like spend the day on the bike. Um, and that, that kind of just like opened my eyes. And it doesn't hurt. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The Achilles doesn't flare up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, seriously, if you're, listen, I mean, if you're a person who loves to push yourself to be outside, to use your bike as a vehicle and you're having pain, I mean, we can gloss over, but the reality is I bet that was pretty troubling to you as a person who was like hardcore into running. It's probably like, oh no, what am I going to do? And so the contrast of that to like being able to go and ride your bike and be like, oh man, this is a whole nother thing I can do. I'm putting words in your mouth, yeah. but that's what I'm picturing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's very true. And, and to be able to, to, um, 
you know, one of the best things, one of the things I really enjoyed about running is, is, you know, going new places and seeing new things. And, and you can really just expand upon that when you, when you're on a bike. Yeah. So when was that, uh, that you went on that 60 mile ride? Like how long ago was that? I'd say that was about 2009. Okay. So we're 13 yeah. years ago. If my yeah, fuzzy yeah. Is right. So you've been, when did you get into bike packing then? How long have you been doing bike packing? So bikepacking is when I moved to Portland, um, I'd say 2018, uh, a friend told me about the, the, well, first of all, I, I saw, um, inspired to ride and that was, yeah, that was like the, the big kind of, um, spark for me. And so that got me into, you know, looking at YouTube videos, that type of stuff. And one of my friends, DBR, um, David Barstow Robinson, he told me about, this race in Oregon called the Steens Mazama, um, which is a, a thousand mile road ultra, which is bike packing self-supported. And so I signed up for that in, I think it was 2019, um, and, or no, 2018. Yeah. And that was my first bike packing event. And it was, um, yeah, it was really eye opening. I, I tried the whole sleep deprivation thing. Um, you know, I had hallucinations. I, uh, you know, slept in a bivy, all that fun stuff. And <laughs> yeah. did you, did you finish it? Yeah. Yeah. I did finish. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's the full experience. Then, I mean, if you get the, uh, hallucinations and sleep deprivation and you sleep in a busy and you finish, you're done. You can retire from bikepacking. Right. You do we, the thing. We got into bikepacking about the same time. I was, I was 2017. It was actually March. 2017 i believe but yeah about the same time um so i have some perspective as where you were at uh where were you were at as a bikepacking community around that same time and it was 2018 whenever i started the podcast um yeah. oh nice yeah just just like you not a lot of not a ton of experience and trying to approach it from that perspective of you know, just a person getting into bikepacking and uh, hopefully asking some of the questions that might appeal to, you know, the regular people out there that that don't do this for a living, that that don't know everything already. Um, and I think I think there's a lot of value in that. Like most of us don't know it all, and uh, the only way to get it is in the title of your company or brand, Experience by Bike. Like that is you can read everything you want and consume all the podcasts and watch all the YouTube channels, but. You got to get out there and experience it for yourself. Yeah, so, absolutely. You've done, let's see. Here's what, here's my list. The BC Epic, Utah Mixed Epic, the Steen, is it Steen's Marzana? Steen's Marzana? Steen's Mazama. Oh, Mazama. Steen's Mazama. Steen's Mazama. 1000, the Oregon Outback, <laughs> and now the Silk Road. Are there any other big ones that I missed? I've done, um, I did the, the smoke and fire 400 in Idaho. Uh, uh And, uh, this year I did the, um, uh, what was it? The, it was in California. Um, oh, I don't remember. (laughs) You don't remember the name of the race you did? Yeah. Um, are you on drugs? (laughs) No, I can't say so. Are you hallucinating right now? (laughs) Was it the Pioneer? Yeah, Pioneer 400. I haven't heard of that one either. 
pioneer. I'm just, I don't know why I'm writing it down. I guess I'll have it for my show notes at some point. Uh, so yeah, you've stage I mean, coach. Sorry, stage coach. coach. I yeah. have heard of that one. The yep. stage coach 400. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you've done a, a, you have a pretty impressive resume for, you know, getting into bikepacking, um, in 2018, I'm curious from the experiences that you've had, the races that you've done, uh, which, or, or even the route, you know, I mean, whether it was a race or not, but uh, which one has been your favorite and which one has been the most challenging before Silk Road? We'll talk about Silk Road later, but up until sure. Silk Road, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which one was your most challenging and which one has been your favorite event? I would say um, the Utah Mix Epic for most challenging. And then my favorite was, uh, I'd say a tie between the, the Utah mixed Epic and the, the BC Epic. Okay. Uh, so what did, what did you like so much? Like, cause Utah, you said it was your most challenging mm -hmm. and maybe the most beautiful. Um, I guess that's not surprising. Utah is so freaking beautiful. What makes that route challenging? Yeah, Utah, it was incredible. Um, the challenging aspect was the uh it was the the duration. So I think it was just over 850 miles. It took me five or six days. And um there are some segments where uh it's just incredibly remote and um desert. So uh for that year there were there were still some some wildfires happening. Um so there are sections where where the air was a bit smoky, um, the desert sections were over 100 degrees and pretty limited in regards to uh, to water sources. Um, and then the the temperature range for the whole race, uh, you know, there were days that were over 100 degrees, and then there were nights that were um, that were I'd say low to mid 20s. Uh, so you just kind of had to be prepared for everything. Did you get any rain the year you did it? Um, no, no, I don't believe so. Yeah. It was this, uh, this year or last year, I'm trying to remember when they got just a ton of rain and you saw a lot of pushing through mud and I mean, desert and rain, I mean, the, the desert needs the rain, but man, if it, if it yeah. uh, rains, it adds a whole nother challenge. So yeah, that's one of those routes that, and he also changes it every year, I believe. So it's never exactly yeah, the same yep. route, which is pretty cool. Um, and also Tim is doing a lot of I mean, that's just a lot of work to just keep revamping the route and, and changing it up every year. But that's what I've seen from the outside is, I mean, you're just, you're in a desert, which is a harsh and harsh and brutal landscape. Uh, it could be super hot, super cold, not a lot of water. And if it rains, it's going to mm -hmm. add a whole nother element. And so, yeah, that, that one seems very challenging from, from an outsider's perspective. Yeah. Like, I'd say in terms of preparation for, um, for the Silk Road mountain race or just, uh, getting, getting kind of experience under your belt. Um, because Utah is at elevation and Tim likes to throw in some, some pretty technical stuff as well, like Rocky hike a bike, that type of stuff. Uh, it was an awesome way to, to prepare for Silk Road. Oh, good tip. Good tip. Yeah. When did you do, uh, when did you do Mix Epic? That was 2020. Okay. Was it before COVID? Um, it was 
kind of like right in the middle of it. Um, we, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or maybe just before, but we had to. We did start. Um, we stagger started because of it. Yeah. How? But yeah. there's there's not a lot of people that usually are brave enough for that one. Do you remember how many people signed up? I don't remember. I think maybe thirty. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not a lot of people. It's hard to get COVID in the desert, I bet. All right, I'm ready to talk about Silk Road. Um, cool. Why? Why Silk Road? I mean, it's a huge, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's a long ways away. It literally looks like a whole nother planet. Um, why? Yeah, I'd say um, a handful of things. There's... Number one, Kyrgyzstan just looks beautiful. Um, you know, hearing, seeing all the stories from the prior iterations of Silk Road and and seeing the landscape, um, I I was really intrigued to to uh, do a bike packing race on on kind of like on a on a larger international scale um, outside of British Columbia. Um, so that was a big you know a big selling point. Um, an international field was really interesting to me. Uh, so just kind of, you know, meeting a lot of like-minded people on international scale. Um, and then the challenge that comes with it, the fact that it was, uh, you know, coming from after doing Utah, the next question was kind of like, all right, what do I do next? Um, so in terms of like the intimidation factor and, and the challenge, um, Silk Road, you know, came to mind uh, immediately. I signed up in, uh, 2021. And, um, pretty much, pretty much after doing Utah, um, probably towards the the latter end of 2020. And I ended up deferring 2021 because of COVID. And that's, that's what got me to, to doing 2022. Okay. Yeah. I, I saw on your blog that you were building your bike for the 2021 one, but you didn't do it. So I was curious yep. what happened there. So you just pushed it back a year. Um, so for you, were you, are you looking to continually push yourself? Like you go have a, a Utah mixed epic experience and you're like, okay, what's the next level? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd say at, at that point, that's where my mindset was. Um, at this point, since, since 2021, I'd say my mindset's changed a little bit, uh, because leading into Silk Road, my, my training was, um, was pretty horrible. (laughs) Uh, I didn't, I didn't spend too much time training. I was kind of focusing on, on just like riding for the enjoyment of it. Um, which led to not riding too much. And, um, my mindset was, was kind of interested more so in, um, in, uh, getting into like touring, um, or, or kind of like exploring in a bike packing sense outside of the competition side of things. And so that's where, that's where my mindset is now. But, um, I was still really interested in, you know, in doing Silk Road, um, because I had signed up for it. A part of me was, was, um, was actually, uh, a little apprehensive about the, the aspect of, of racing. Um, in a country where 
from from all accounts that I had heard, you know, everybody's incredibly hospitable and and kind of like welcoming you and in, you into your home, um, into their home, um, for like you know sleeping, food, drinks, that type of stuff. So a part of me was a little bit concerned about uh, about doing a a competitive event through uh, a country like that and and a culture um, where I I may be feeling like I was, uh, you know, dismissive. Yeah. Well, can you speak to how your experience was then with that? I mean, I can, I'm a person that kind of likes to slow down and smell the roses and appreciate the place that I'm in. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I sometimes question the, I mean, and it's a personal thing, right? Like I certainly wouldn't call anybody else for racing, but for me, I do, I, I, I would struggle with that as well. It's like, okay, well, if I'm going to go there, I'm going to spend all this time and money and I might go into a person's hut. Well, do I want to go into their hut and like eat really fast and leave? Or do I want to hang out with them for a little bit and hear Mm -hmm. a story or two, you know? And so, um, with that kind of thought process, uh, what was your experience like to actually go and race it? Yeah, with that thought process, um, I I felt comfortable while I was racing it. Um, there were there were still people who who were offering me, uh, you know, offering me a place to stay, a place to sleep. Um, I would I would use my my phone in Google Translate uh, because it, it has Kyrgyz uh, language in Google Translate, and I tell them, hey, you know, I'm I'm doing a, a bike race right now from Osh to Bishkek um, with like 200, 250 other people. And, uh, so I'm, I'm focusing on, on just moving quickly. And, and a lot of times the, the, the reception would just be like, oh, you know, that's super cool. And they'd ask me about the bike. They'd ask me, um, where I came from, like where I'm going. Uh, so yeah, it, I, I felt pretty comfortable with it after kind of being immersed in the experience. Did you get any kind of sense for how comfortable or how familiar, um, the people along the, the race route are becoming, I mean, this is the third year there's, you know, at this point, there's probably been three or 400 riders that have gone through those roads and stuff. Like, did you get the sense they kind of knew what was going on and, and were comfortable with it or. I think for, for me, it helped that, um, since I was kind of like mid pack, um, it, it seemed like everybody was, was accustomed to it already. Uh, you know, like the marketplaces I came into, um, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people were, it, it seemed were pretty intrigued. Um, there were, there were some people that, that, uh, did recognize, uh, the race from prior years. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, for me, it, it seemed like, uh, it seemed like most of the um, the people in uh, the the people who worked in the in the marketplaces and the stores um, were, uh, you know, kind of just curious, um, but not always terribly surprised. That may be different for you know what the what the front of the race perception was. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I think we should put Kyrgyzstan on the map. Um, for people listening and who maybe aren't familiar with the Silk Road, um, mm-hmm. it's 1,120 miles and 100,000 feet of elevation. So, I mean, those are mm-hmm. serious stats. But what really tells the story of this race for me is is the landscape and the place that it is. And like I said earlier, I bet most people couldn't 
point it out on a map. I don't know if you could, but uh, how would you describe Kyrgyzstan? Yeah, I'd say um, vast landscapes, uh, varied landscapes. Um, you know, there there are times where I felt like I was in New Zealand. There are times I felt like I was in Utah. Uh, it's it's pretty incredible how how quickly the the scenery and the landscape can change. Um, there's a place in Arslanabad. I think it's pronounced Arslanabad right before that. Um, it's the biggest walnut forest in the world, I believe. Um, and leading to that, you're, you're riding through 60 to 70 miles of this, uh, this valley that is, um, that is just like unbelievably expansive. Um, so you're like, you feel like this little small dot in this valley and then, uh, you get to, you know, this, this beautiful walnut forest. Um, and I was wondering if there was yeah. any trees. I've never seen a single tree on any of the videos <laughs> that I've watched. <laughs> so I'm happy to hear that they do have some trees, but yeah, it can uh, be hard to looks, sh find shade sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, just wind and rain or, or whatever. Uh, what else? How about, how about the roads? I think the roads have to be a defining feature of this route, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, the roads are, uh, are, can be pretty rough. Um, day two was a pretty amazing day because there was about 60 to 70 miles of downhill tarmac. And so in my mind, it was kind of like a recovery day. Um, mm -hmm. I was just kind of just like rolling along the whole day. But other than that, um, the, the roads in, in the towns and, um, outside of the towns are, are definitely kind of like pretty pockmarked. Um, a lot of, a lot of ruts and it's not, you know, it's not the most fun tarmac or, you know, road surface for a, for a fully rigid bike. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of I, I, on the video, the wild horses video, they're going up a old Soviet road that's just overgrown with grass. And it's just a, I assume just a dot on a map or a line on a map that you're following. It seems like, did yeah, you all run yep. into, is, is there a decent amount of, of those old roads or is it mostly kind of more established roads? Yeah. And a, a huge variety. There's, you know, really nice dirt single or really nice dirt double track. Um, there, there was definitely plenty of, of kind of riding on, on just grass. Uh, like you said, where you're kind of following a breadcrumb track, Really? Um, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was really cool. Beautiful. Did you have, was it difficult to navigate? Uh, you know, not, I wouldn't say so. Um, most of since, since most of the roads are pretty, um, or since most of the landscape was kind of, was pretty expansive and, and there aren't too many kind of like intermingled or interconnected roads. Um, navigation was pretty easy. Okay. Yeah, there's not a lot of options. You get on the one road and you go yeah. through it. As long as you're not <laughs> going through a grass field, you kind of have a sense for where you're going. Um, you one thing I was thinking um, to circle back around about our convert that we were just talking about with, you know, this idea of racing versus touring in an area, mm -hmm. and and I and to paint a good a picture, not to just be negative against racing. I host a race. Uh, you like to race. But yeah, definitely. The, the the cool thing about it is that 
it brings people to an area that would otherwise not be there. And I'm not sure exactly what it is about a race specifically that does that, but I've seen it in, with my own East Texas showdown. I mean, you came down, we had people from all over the United States and they all came and got a different perspective and appreciation for a, a place that was unfamiliar to them. And that is cool, you know, and that happened through a mm -hmm. race. And I know for a fact that like Kyrgyzstan was never on my radar. I wasn't Googling the Silk Road and wanting to understand the history of the Silk Road. And, you know, so it, yeah, I think it does a lot of good and it probably opens up a lot of people's idea to maybe touring in an area the way that, you know, if you're just a guy that goes and ride it on your bike, probably doesn't have the same you know, impact in terms of, of, you know, spreading the word of, of an area, so to speak, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, there are definitely plenty of benefits to, um, having a race in a different location. Cause like you said, it, it brings intrigue. Um, it brings economy. Uh, so, I mean, that's 250 people bringing con economy into these, into these, um, you know, small towns and villages, um, so that's incredibly beneficial. And for me, I, I, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm already craving going back to Kyrgyzstan and kind of, um, just like experiencing it on, on a more personal level. Yeah. What about it? Are you wanting to get more intimate with the people, the landscape? Like what, what is drawing you back? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd say all of it, people, landscape. Um, I want to spend more time with, with the people because, uh, for me, one thing I would absolutely change about the way I went about the race is, um, I camped every single night. Um, I didn't, I didn't stay in a guest house. I didn't stay in a yurt. Um, and in, in my mind, I was trying to be, I was trying to be efficient. Uh, but I think that kind of, um, it kind of backfired and, and it also, uh, limited my experiences. Um, cause, looking at like looking at, uh, Sofian's Instagram posts. Um, he had mentioned that he slept four hours a night and, um, he stayed in, you know, he stayed in guest houses, he stayed with people. Um, so it's, it is a, it's awesome to see that, you know, Sofian can be, uh, that competitive and, and still being able to enjoy like the people in the culture. It doesn't make sense if you look at the dots. I don't know if you went back and watched the dots and you see uh, Sofian, James, and Steve, or Steven, sorry, uh, just, I mean, create a huge chasm of a gap between oh, yeah. the rest of the film. It was like... It's it incredible. Too, I've never seen quite that big of a gap in, a, in one of these races. I was like, holy shit. Uh, but yeah, and the whole time he's doing social media and singing and... Um, right. It, <laughs> He's a special guy, man, and I, I got to spend some time with him on the Tour Divide or at the end of the Tour Divide and just chatting me and him, and um, that's something that I, I learned about him, that well, a perspective that I never really realized and that, that he actually brought to my attention is how often are you in real time able to be involved in an experience of like a number one athlete of anything. I mean, a race car driver, a golfer, like you're not on course with them getting updates and whatever, like, and, and that's, that's something he does intentionally, you know, I mean, it, he's busy, he's doing other stuff, but 
he is intentional ten, intentional about um, sharing those experiences with with us, and I think we're pretty lucky to to have that. Um, but it's a perspective I never really realized because he's so good at it, so natural at it that I never really. It just seems like it's natural, but it's actually something that he you know he he's intentional about doing, which is pretty neat. Definitely, yeah. I'm I'm grateful for him doing that type of stuff too. I mean, just trying to to do my own recording during the race. I know how, how exhausting it can be sometimes. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Content creation is hard any way you slice it. Right. Um, yeah. I think, I think it's challenging. And if you're trying to do it while you're bike packing, I mean, I've, I've tried, I even re- recording a podcast. That's not stupid. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one, it's a, it's another thing that you just have to do. It's another thing you have to carry. It's, it takes your time and attention away from the other things that you may want to be doing. And for me, that's kind of the conflict like you, it's, I don't want to be distracted from the experience I'm there to have and you know whipping out a recorder or whatever just it's not always the vibe that i'm looking for when when i'm doing that and so yeah i, I think yeah I, it's worth acknowledging that people like they create this content and stuff it's it's uh it's it's worthwhile i think since you're talking about it i know that you uh took a gopro and a film camera uh are you planning on I mean, obviously the film camera, you're probably just going to develop those, but with your GoPro, do you have any hopes and dreams for putting out like a little video about your experience or what are you thinking? Yeah, definitely. I'm going to, um, I'll put out like a little like recap or, or highlight video on my YouTube channel. Were you able to keep with it enough to, to have enough content? <laughs> <at the end? laughs> or are you like me and you get halfway through and you're like, I'm sick of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good question. I'd I'd say um I'd say I did okay. Um after looking back at it, I was after looking at the footage when I got home, I was like, oh man, this, you know, this turned out better than I expected. Um I wish I recorded more because it was it was cool to get I tried to do recaps, like like brief day re- daily recaps. Um I probably did it like 50% of the time, just like two to three minute recap. Um, but it was awesome to see that. And, and, uh, I tried to get a lot of just like, you know, landscape footage. Yeah. Yeah. That's gonna be cool. I'll be look. I'll be looking forward to seeing that. I'm interested to know what your goal was going in, especially with the understanding that, I don't know, you were on this like kind of racy track and then you're like, Oh, well maybe I want to enjoy it. And you weren't training as hard. Uh, as maybe you would have for Utah mix epic or whatever. So like, yeah, what, what were your goals? Oh, but the, and the other interesting thing about that is that you also, when you were there, you were sleeping in a, you were camping every night. So it seems like you were also like, once you were there, you were like, I am racing, I'm doing my best. So yeah. What, what was that like? What were your goals going into it? Yeah, it's it's still hard for me to get away from like the competitive competitive aspect. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so getting into it, my I was going to be happy with like being in being in like the top thirty. Um, that was I'd say that was my goal. And so um, starting starting the race with the the neutral rollout, I kind of just tried to position myself within the top thirty. Um, and uh, you know, I was I was hoping for the best from that point. Um, so yeah, goals were top 30 and then also trying to get under 10 days. Um, what was your training like for Silk Road? 
Um, I did the uh, the Stagecoach 400 earlier in the year. Um, that was kind of like, I, I'd say like a litmus test to, to see what type of fitness I was in. Um, and uh, after that, it was kind of, it was like a, a mixture of, uh, I'd say a, a long ride of like 60 to 70 miles. Um, I don't know, every couple of weeks. And daily riding was, I, I probably rode like 15 to, to 30 miles, um, maybe like every, every other day or so. Um, so any cross training or just riding, uh, a little bit of running. Yeah. Yeah. I still enjoy running. <laughs> and I, go ahead. Oh, it's just easier for me. Like throw some shoes on, get out the door. Yeah. I think it's good cross training for biking, especially if you're going to be in Kyrgyzstan and doing a lot of hike a bike. I mean, definitely those muscles has got to be, got to be good. What about, um, you know, your preparation for going to another country, uh, Kyrgyzstan, you don't know the language, you don't know uh, a lot of stuff. You don't know probably the, what is it safe? Um, all kinds of stuff. So like, what, what was your preparation like to prepare for going to a, a foreign land? Yeah, I did. Um, I did a little bit of research just on the on the Facebook page, um, the Silk Road Mountain Race discussion page, uh, just to see what people's recommendations were in terms of um, uh, in terms of like food. Uh, Conan Tai had a, had an awesome blog about um, about like the the food that was available in uh, the prior the iteration that he did. Um, I wish that I did a little bit more research in terms of the language um because there's uh when you're in the cities russian is spoken a lot um but when you're in the countryside it's it's um uh kyrgyz is is the the main language they still speak russian i think a little bit in the countryside uh because sometimes when people are trying to talk to me they were like ruski ruski and i was like uh <laughs> no it's sorry. like if you live in texas <laughs> and we all speak a little bit of hispanic you know i mean it's just kind of cultural sure. yeah yeah yep. yeah yeah, yeah. The, if you have a lot of those interactions you're going to pick up some of the words and want to communicate and stuff i do have to give you credit though like you've been nailing all the names you've been saying all the names of places you pass through and stuff so you obviously were mindful of you know knowing where you were and trying to like learn at least learn that you know yeah yeah i learned uh i learned thank you uh rachma Rachma. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if Kyr- I'm pronouncing it correctly. That's in Kyrgyz because every okay. time I said it, uh, kids would be laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe they just, I don't know, maybe look funny or something. They're like, what yeah. is this guy doing? <laughs> at least you try. I don't know. Yeah. Well, does that uh, Google Translate work pretty well? I've never had the fortune to use it before. So I actually don't know how well it works. It seemed like it worked pretty well just in terms of like the conversational side of things. Um, I thought it was awesome because whenever I had service, uh, if somebody was asking me questions, um, I could just, you know, pull it out and I'd, I'd type and, uh, and, um, hand the phone over to them. They'd switch it to Kyrgyz and, and type. And so we just have like a, a text conversation that way. Um, and it seemed like it worked pretty well. There, there were times where it seemed like the translation didn't directly come across because 
Um, this one guy kept calling me like black sheep and I'm like, I don't think he's trying to call me that, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not black or a sheep and yeah. you don't know my familial situation. So I feel like that's not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, uh, going into it, um, fears, anxieties, did you, did you have any? And if so, what were they? Yeah, I'd say, um, uh, a little bit of concern over, over, um, what I'd be eating, uh, because, uh, it, it seems like, you know, food poisoning is, is a, um, is a common occurrence in, in the prior races. And so there's definitely concern there. Um, uh, a little bit of concern over the more remote, um, parts of the race, because there were, there were sections where it was, uh, a hundred plus miles with, with no services. Um, so just making sure that I was, uh, well aware of, of when those places were coming up so I could properly resupply beforehand. No, uh, no safety concerns. I don't, I don't know the area very well. I mean, is that generally a, an issue or, or not really? Um, not really. There, there were a couple instances, um, during this year where, um, where some people were concerned about their safety. Uh, but, in the, I'd say in the grand scheme of things, it was a, as a really low percentage. Um, I had one instance where, um, where there was like a group of, a group of guys like mid late twenties. And it seemed like they were kind of trying to intimidate me. Um, but it also seemed like it was just like one of the guys trying to, trying to impress his friends. Um, so it was just kind of like a, a quick instance and I, and I got on my way. Um, but uh, was that in a city center or out in a more rural place? It was it was leaving a city center and um I was going to to a more like quiet gravel road and as I was getting to the turn there are these guys like uh you know hanging out by a fence and and um as I was kind of approaching them one of the guys started walking from the fence towards me and uh and I just like nodded at him and and went to ride by. Um, but he grabbed my bike and then he grabbed me and kind of like pulled me to a stop. Oh. So I was like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> um, and then that's he, not the uh, thought that would be going through my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he so he did that, but then he held out his hand, um, shook my hand, and I was like, all right. So, you know, friendly gesture. And he started demanding, um, he was asking for, for cart. Uh, I'm not sure whether it was Kyrgyz or Russian, but he was like, cart, cart. Um, and, uh, he, he was like gesturing a, a rectangle. Um, so I was like, at, is he asking for like documents for like a, a you know, card or like cash? I'm, I'm not sure. So I just cigarettes. Kept, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so I was like, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know. I was just kind of like thinking worst case a little bit, um, especially because at that point he was still holding onto the bike and kind of blocking the direction I was going. Um, I think my girlfriend looked it up later and she said he was asking about a map. Um, so maybe he was curious about where I was going. Uh, uh, but uh, one of his friends start, started walking towards me. And I was like, all right, you know, this is interesting. We've got somebody else starting to engage now. And he walked up to my face and he said, um, 
he said, run away now. And I was like, all righty. <laughs> so I just pulled the bike from the guy and, you know, started going. And uh, the guy laughed. Um, his friend just walked back to the other guys. So I was like, all right, you know, maybe Whoa. they're just trying to mess with me. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It's just scary. You just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of at night. Um, you know, the, the one benefit to it is it, it, uh, kept me up for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah, I was about to ask what, what your adrenaline was like after that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I tried to get some distance and I'm, I meant to, uh, um, to message Nelson, uh, just to give him a heads up, but I didn't have service for like the next eight hours. Um, so <laughs> I couldn't get any message out. Yeah. What's the safety protocol there? Um, you know, from the race perspective, obviously you have your, um, Garmin or actually this year y'all had, yeah. In reaches, I think, because there was a, yeah, yep. uh, an issue with the Ukrainian and Russian war and it knocked out some satellites or something. Um, yeah. What do you know the story there? Um, not completely. I think, I think that the, the spot network, because of potentially because of sanctions, um, or there was, or there was like a satellite, maybe not sanctions, but there was a, one of their, um, you know, one of their towers was, was down in central Asia. Um, yeah, I don't know the specifics. I know, I know Nelson sent it in an email. Yeah. Like days before. I mean, it was a huge scramble. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually, I've been on the phone with a uh, map progress. Who's going to do our tracking for East Texas showdown. I was just on the phone with him the other day. And, uh, so he was pretty involved in, I guess, helping with that situation and getting him back on the road. So because of that, y'all didn't have, uh, y'all had in reaches. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, in reaches instead of the Gen 3s or whatever most people we usually use. Um, but they work the same way. I mean, you have an emergency feature and all that stuff. So is that the safety protocol? What what do they have in place for, you know, instances uh, when or if they do occur? Yeah, there's the, I mean, if if you're if you're in like a dire situation, there's the SOS with the in reach. Um, if, uh, you know, if there are situations where, where you feel unsafe or, um, you're not able to, you know, not able to proceed, but, um, but, uh, you know, not a dire situation, then you can, you can, um, text or email, um, Nelson or, or the, uh, you know, the, the race organization. Um, I know they, they helped some riders kind of like get a taxi, um, if they, if they had to scratch, uh, so yeah, there's, there's direct communication if needed. If you have cell phone service. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, you were able to set up the in reaches to, um, uh, to do messaging through satellite. Um, you were able to, but I was actually, I wasn't borrowing one of the race ones. I was borrowing a, a friends. Um, so I didn't even, I didn't set that up. I probably should have. <laughs> was your girlfriend, uh, there the whole time? Yeah, she um she was there. She flew out on the seventeenth, so about five days into the race. Yeah, and then she just followed you around in a car as a support vehicle. Totally, yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> <was> very fortunate. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, that's cool though. So she came out to see you for the the end of it, huh? Yeah, yeah. Our our goal was to um. She's been 
incredibly supportive in a lot of these races. Um, so when I went to Utah, um, she, she went to Utah with me and when I was doing the bike packing race, she was out kind of doing her own exploration, um, you know, biking herself with a friend and, and hiking and then meeting me at the finish. Um, she's done that for, for a few other races and, uh, she's always wanted to go to central Asia. So we thought this was a good opportunity to, um, for me to do the race and then, uh, for us to kind of spend a, a few days after the race, um, just kind of exploring Kyrgyzstan and Bishkek. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Let's talk about your bike real quick. Um, I read, so you do have a pretty good blog. One thing that I think you're good at, I, I I'm gathering you're a pretty detail oriented guy, so your 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 bike breakdown on your blog is is pretty good and it, and it's really about how to build a bike for Silk Road. Um and I know that you know you signed up in 2021 and it got pushed to 22. So is is that information still pretty current? And do you want to give and and then also do you want to give like the just the highlights of your bike and your gear list that you took? Yeah, definitely. I'd say it's it's mostly current. Um it's it changed just, just a little bit. And, uh, I'd say I, the title of it was how to, was, um, building a bike for the Silk Road mountain race. But I'd say ultimately my goal was to, to just like, to build a bike that was, that was kind of like a, a good Swiss army knife of, of, um, overall use because it's pretty much the only bike I have. Um, so my thought process was, was not going hardtail, uh, because I wanted something to, uh, to kind of use for, for like gravel riding, daily riding around town. Um, if I was to build a, a bike that was really dedicated to Silk Road, um, I'd probably go with the hardtail. <laughs> um, whereas yeah. you have more of a beefy gravel bike. Yeah. Right? Yep. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it worked phenomenally. Um, I was really happy with it. So it's, a uh, bolt cutter peacemaker uh gravel plus and i've got a um a whiskey fork that takes uh 2.2 2.1 inch clearance for 29 inch tires um i was able to fit 29 by 2.2 and then the rear fits uh two inches so um for gravel bike it, it has pretty good clearance um i used maxis icon tires which were tremendous no flats no tire issues whatsoever really um, that's yeah. my favorite tire sponsor me yeah that yep. tire is bull i'm <laughs> telling you i've been using that tire it's been around um over 20 years that i've been using it that tire i mean oh, not nice. exclusively but yeah um all the way back to mountain bike single track days to you know riding gravel or bike packing i i think that's a great tire yeah yeah, I was blown away by by the fact that there was that I had no issues. Um, that yeah. was pretty incredible. That was one of my questions of how many flats you got. It wasn't did you get flats. My question was going to be how many did yeah. you get. So, <laughs> uh, and I, again, I only know what you know from watching the videos. But you watch the videos and mechanicals and flats, and you look at the train. It's not surprising. Like you would expect to have yeah issues. You know, so you built a bulletproof bike. The bolt cutter is bulletproof. Yeah, it definitely was for this instance. Um, yeah, I had, let's see, I was running one by 11 SRAM rival. Um, there were 
you know, in terms of the chain, there were some issues just, uh, you know, just with dirt and dust, it, it started getting a little, um, a little chunky and, uh, and, uh, shifting was a little off periodically, but, um, I'd say that's just kind of like, you know, run of the mill instance for that. Um, all I had to do is take a rag to it and, and, um, you know, rinse it off, throw on some, throw on some, uh, some lube and it was good to go. Um, I never had to adjust like indexing or anything for the shifting. Nice. What about, um, dynamo or are you running mm-hmm. battery powered? What, what's your power bank situation and your charging situation look like? Yeah, I had a, um, a shutter precision dynamo hub, um, and a sine wave beacon headlight, uh, which allowed me to, to charge some stuff via the USB port. Um, that's, and then in terms of cash batteries, I had one 10,000 milliamp and another 5,000 milliamp. Um, that's where, where, uh, the charging situation is, was a little iffy. And that's where my thought process in terms of, um, in terms of periodically like staying at guest houses would have, would have helped because, uh, the train was significantly slower than I expected. Um, especially on some of like some of the, the mountain passes where we were doing hike a bike. Um, so a lot of the times I couldn't rely on the dynamo to, to charge my power banks or anything. Yeah. That's what, well, so what did you do? Were you able to maintain power, the power that you needed or did you wind up, I guess you said some of the roads are just long, but, but yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you run into any issues or were you able to just kind of squeak by? Um, I mostly squeaked by, I did run into some issues where uh, the majority of the time I never listened to, I listened to, never listened to any music. Um, I had to keep my phone off because it was like constantly between like five to cent, five to 10% battery. <laughs> yeah. So you needed yeah. that for emergencies essentially just in case something you really right. needed a phone. Yeah. yeah. For like emergency call or like emergency, um, backup mapping. So what is one item that you wish you brought and one item that you brought that you didn't need? Ooh, um, let's see. One item I wish I brought would be a a helmet mounted light. Um, because I had a, I had a, a flashlight, um, that's kind of like a Phoenix flashlight. Uh, but it, I didn't have a good helmet mount to it. So that would have been really nice for the hike a bike sections where the dynamo wasn't, um, wasn't, uh, able, able to, you know, fully power the light, um, the hike a bike sections or just like the slow climbs because the dynamo would just kind of be like going in and out. And that got really annoying. Um, (laughs) and I'm already hallucinating and now I've got like a strobe light effect. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and having the flashlight mounted to the bike when you're going really slow, um, especially when you're kind of like weaving going uphill, that gets annoying. Yeah. It gets bumpy and all over yeah. the place. Okay. Yep. So you wish you brought a helmet light with a mount. That's, that's, yep. yeah. I feel like for a detailed oriented person, you should have figured that out before you left. I got to say, Seth. Yeah. I did not test that setup. You messed that <laughs> up big time. I sure did. Hey, you got some experience by bike though, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I lived up to it. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you got to do. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So what's one that you brought and that you didn't need if there Uh, was anything? 
Yeah, one thing I brought that I didn't need would be, um, let's see. I brought a, I decided to to omit um, my my insulated sleeping mat. And I went with like a, I think it was a Gossamer Gear, like eighth inch foam pad. Um, I probably wouldn't bring that um, because I used it, but it wasn't very effective. And I think going back to the, you know, sleeping at a guest house periodically, um, that would be a lot more, a lot more effective just in terms of like getting good sleep. Um, I'm and pretty not use a pad at all. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, was the ground soft enough? You just find like a patch of grass or, or what? Most of the time. Yeah. There, there were some nights where it was pretty cold, where it, where it would be useful. Um, I definitely don't recommend that for everybody, but, uh, for me, I'm, I'm able to, I was pretty well insulated with, um, with, I had a little, uh, a little kind of like polar tech alpha base layer um and then my puffy jacket and then my sleeping bag so um it's good enough insulation for me on the ground yeah what is something you learned from doing the race that utah mixed epic and all your research didn't prepare you for um things can always be slower than you expect (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh man so just slow going just slow what made it slow what Um, made it slow yeah for me what made it slow was uh the train for sure um so there was uh the first pass which was uh what was it called gyptic pass and then the last pass shamsy pass um really 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 slow hike a bike took all day um felt like all day and then also uh just getting sick i got food poisoning the first two days and then um i think day like six through eight uh i just had horrible diarrhea (laughs) yeah yeah that's um yeah the one thing that i got well not the only thing but um, the, your stomach troubles had to play like a huge, uh, factor. And, um, so let's talk about your stomach. What, what happened? I mean, it started from like the very beginning of the race, almost, it seems like, or before, or yeah. What, what happened? Yeah. I was feeling the day before the race, I was feeling completely fine. And, uh, then I woke up and, and, um, felt a little bit nauseous. Uh, got to the start of the race and like I said, kind of the beginning of the neutral rollout, um, I was trying to stick in like the top 30 just to, to stay within like my goal position. Um, and within the first hour I started like sweating profusely. I had like hot sweats, cold sweats, felt really weak. And then, um, and then I just started throwing up. Uh, so first hour I started throwing up and then the second hour, um, I thought I had kind of like emptied the system. And, uh, so I started drinking water and electrolytes and, uh, my body like profusely rejected that. Um, (laughs) so it was kind of, I started throwing up, but it was more like exorcism style. And, (laughs) um, so from day two and three, uh, I just had a, a horrible headache in the back of my head. Those were the last bouts of throwing up. Um, but I just had a horrible headache and, the back of my, of my neck, the tendons were just like 
were really tight and sore. Um, from throwing up so violently. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've I've had food poisoning where I've described it as an exorcism where it feels like you're possessed and your body's just and and the next day mm-hmm. I was sore from throwing up so hard, so aggressively that I was my body ached, yeah. my back was sore. Um, you know, food poisoning for, I mean, I think most people probably experienced it at some point in their life. It is not a joke. So it's pretty crazy that, I mean, I've, I saw your miles. I know the first day you only did like a hundred something miles. The next day you did like 150, but I mean, you're, you say only a hundred, I know a hundred was more than your goal, but you're doing that in over, what is it? Gyptic. Yeah. Gyptic Gyptic pass. pass. You You have food poisoning over Gyptic Pass, which is 13,730 feet. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It was um it was it was not a fun experience getting up to that 13,700 feet. <laughs> was there ever a part where you were thinking about pulling in the towel? I'm not I'm not gonna lie, yeah. like okay, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> what kept you from what what prevented you from doing it? Yeah, That's a legitimate so I, excuse. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I um yeah, so I, I woke up on day two and still feeling pretty horrible. Um but uh I there's a there's a town that we were getting into, sorry mogul. Um so I was just like, all right, you know, get into town and and kind of reassess from that point. Um so I got into town and I got there. Uh, I'd say probably like nine, nine thirty AM. Um, and I, I ended up having service. So I, I called my girlfriends, Naya and I was like, Hey, this is, this is rough. This is pretty horrible. I've just been throwing up, um, all of yesterday and have a terrible headache. Um, I was like, if it, if it keeps going like this, I'm, you know, I'm not sure if it's, if it's worth continuing. And she's like, yeah, you know, um, I support you and and what does whatever decision you choose. Um, if you want to, if you want to stop or keep going, um, she was arriving on Friday. So I was like, yeah, if it, if it keeps going, then, you know, I'll just, I'll just scratch and we can do our own kind of, you know, travel <laughs> extravaganza. Um, Man, that's, tem- that's a big temptation. Super tempting. <laughs> yeah. That's I, Yeah. It's even more impressive. You stick stuck in it. So, yeah. yeah. So at that point I was just like, I think that was, um, Tuesday maybe. Um, but, uh, I was just like, you know, just make it, just keep going. Um, take this day as it is and, and, uh, try to make it to Friday. Um, and you know, kind of reassess. So it was, it was constantly just a state of, of like, get to this next point, reassess, get to this next point, reassess. Um, while at the same time trying to be as, as kind of like, uh, like kind to my body as possible. Um, so, you know, taking in water, um, on the first day I I could only eat two granola bars. Um, on the second day I was able to get three down and, uh, and some ice cream. (laughs) Um, yeah, but fortunately it was, like I mentioned, day two was, was mostly downhill. Um, so that was, I'd say a really, uh, kind of a saving grace in terms of, uh, being able to recover during that time. Yeah, no kidding. It doesn't make sense that you were able to keep going if you 
extract all of the calories out of your body and you're doing something at elevation that's very physically demanding, your body is burning everything you have and you're not taking on food or water. Yeah. Like the fact <laughs> that you, you, I mean, you know this, I'm sure as an outdoors person, dehydration, throwing up, these are some of the things that, that it's, it's the building blocks to failure essentially, right? Like these are the things where you can't really recover because you're still going, you're not taking in the food and water you need. So your body is depleted and you just keep depleting. It, it's not often that I'm aware of where people are able to kind of recover from that. I mean, no shade to Scotty, but Scotty had, you know, stomach issues on this year's race and had to pull out. And I think that is the common narrative is once you get into that um, situation, mm -hmm. your ability to recover is so much harder. I'm, you were aware of all that, I'm sure, while you were going through it. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'd say, um, I, in terms of like the, the mental state, my mode was just, yeah, it was just like, you know, recover, be kind to your body. Um, uh, most of the time when I was riding, leaving, leaving that town, sorry, mogul, it was on, it was on road. And I mean, my heart rate was maybe like 90 to 105. That's, that's the, the, you know, limited amount of effort I was putting in. Um, which still felt like a lot of effort. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no kidding. <laughs> so you went up, uh, where are you, where were you at in your illness and, uh, crossing Gyptic pass? Um, yeah. So crossing Gyptic pass, I, um, that was kind of, I'd say like mid stages because, um, I started feeling better, uh, beginning of, of day three. Um, and Gyptic pass was, uh, I think I got to the summit of Gyptic pass around nine 30 on the first day. I don't, where did you go in your mind? Like how, how did you get through that? I, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that you've never <laughs> ridden or pushed your bike over 13,000 feet before in your life. You're in a foreign country, you have food poisoning, you're on day one and you're doing Gyptic pass. Like how did you, how did you do that? Do you, do you, <laughs> yeah. super tough? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I would say it's, um, you know, with the, the help and support of, of everybody around me, um, just in terms of the fact that, you know, I knew other people were, were dealing with this and, um, you know, maybe, maybe people weren't dealing with food poisoning, but you know, they were dealing with their, you know, their own issues. We've, we've all got our own story, um, during these races and, and, uh, I was, um, I was kind of like ping-ponging with a lot of people as, as we were going up Gyptic Pass where, uh, you know, I'd find shade and, and kind of like rest for seven minutes and, um, somebody would pass me and then I'd start moving and, and then I'd pass them as they're resting. Um, so it's just like, you know, we're, we're all in this together trying to move up this. And, uh, so you, when you see other people crying and throwing up and <laughs> taking a nap, you're like, okay, we're all we're all struggling. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's what you sign up. It, yeah. It, it, the dehydration and throwing up, it adds a, a, another element that is real and scary. And I'll, I'll say it again. Most people can't bounce back from that. So I don't know exactly what it says about you, but, um, you're not a quitter. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that, that's, I mean, just to overcome that first day with that kind of a challenge is, 
is really impressive. So, um, how did let's conclude the uh, the sickness at least part of your story? So uh, it just ran its course, and you're able to you got to feeling good again, or, or what happened? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I'd say kind of like day three, um, early to mid day three, uh, I, I was able to start, um, you know, uh, I had an appetite, uh, so I was able to, to start eating and, and, um, got, you know, really in, or I guess just really, um, really hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the, the appetite came back and, and I was able to eat a lot, um, you know, drink a lot. And so, uh, you know, recovery kind of kind of started going and, and from there, um, I, I kind of felt like I, uh, got some power back. I was able to, you know, to, to, to ride the bike and, and put some power into the pedals rather than just kind of coasting along. No, it's a, for you, it was a 12 day effort. Um, so, it's it still just amazes me that you're able to recover and do do you feel like you were having to make up and put in extra calories for all the calories that your body didn't get and did you have like a, a surplus of food on your bike because you had three days of not eating so you're like well i got a lot of yeah. food to eat <laughs> yeah i definitely had yeah i definitely had uh had food left over from day one and two <laughs> yeah so once you could eat you just started cramming as much in as you could Right. Yeah. And the benefit is I, I brought food that, that I knew worked for me. Um, uh, cause I wasn't sure what I'd get in markets. So, you know, just like cliff bars, gummy bears, that type of stuff. Um, so yeah. all that was pretty easy to get down. Do you know what gave you food poisoning? I don't, I had, um, I had a, I ate at a restaurant, um, the night before. And, uh, that was the first time I tried, a. I think it's pronounced cumis or cumis and which is fermented horse milk. Um, mm. and so as, as we sat down, they, uh, they gave the group, um, everybody got a shot of it. And so I was like, this is, this is probably a bad idea to try for the <laughs> first time the night before. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's, uh, initiated it. <laughs> it's a tough situation. Cause, uh, yeah, you don't want to be rude, uh, or anything and like a fendom or, you know, I mean, so yeah, I, I, that, okay. So cumin or whatever. Yeah. I, I watched, uh, I'm people have probably seen it, but wild horses, the documentary that they made about silk road. Um, there's a guy milking a horse and I'm like, I didn't even know you could do that. <laughs> I, th- I thought we did that to cows, sheep, goats, but I didn't know about the horses. So that was, and you got to drink it. How is it? Is it good? It wasn't too bad. Um, Does it taste know, like milk? It's interesting. It's a little pungent. Uh, it was mm. warm. Um, mm. Yeah, Tasty. it's it's pretty prolific. You'll people will sell it on the streets, um, on the side of the road. So. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. If you want to try it, it's, yeah, and, it's not pasteurized. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> nice and so raw. This, uh, one, one interesting thing about Silk Road is that they start it at midnight. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, why do they do that just for fun? And, and how did that impact you, um, at all? If, if any, you know, your strategy to the race? Yeah, that was, um, that was primarily because of Gyptic Pass. Um, uh, because Nelson wanted, mo- wanted people to, uh, 
to be able to get through the pass during the daytime. Um, for me, uh, I got there. Yeah, I got there at 9.30 p.m. So I got there like just to the summit just as it was getting dark. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty glad about that. Um, I think it worked out well in that, in that manner. Cause I think I was, I was a little bit more back of the pack at that point. Um, so it was pretty helpful to be able to, to see what was happening, where you were going. Cause, uh, it was really, really rocky. Um, and you know, a lot of the, the single track and rocky sections, um, you had to, to lift your bike a lot. Uh, so, um, yeah, for the, didn't mess you the, up with like sleeping or anything. A little bit. Um, I know a good amount of people just just uh, you know kept riding through the through the night and through the day. Um, so they had maybe like a 30, 40 hour span of uh, of riding without sleep. But for me, just because I was feeling so awful, um, I ended up uh, taking a forty five minute nap from like five to five forty five in the morning, uh, just hoping that could could kind of like reset me a little bit hmm. and did it well uh, we know it really. did eventually yeah. <laughs> yeah not until day three <laughs> yeah <laughs> it took some time to work <laughs> well food poisoning is no joke was there ever a point where i mean obviously the man the first few days i don't even know how you survived it's just like a war of attrition i'm sure that detracted from the experience a little bit but um did you get to a point where you could like just enjoy the experience and your body and just kind of enjoy it yeah definitely um yeah i'd say yeah i'd say day three to like day seven was was pretty awesome um I was, I was feeling pretty strong, uh, slowly kind of like moving up through the field, um, where I'd, I'd kind of ride as much as possible during the day. A lot of the times towards the, around the beginning of the race, um, the, uh, it was really hot, um, during the, during the day, like nineties. Uh, so I'd ride pretty easy during the day and then, uh, and then I'd, I'd ride a little harder at night and, and try to ride a little bit longer. Um, so I, I kind of tried to catch up with, with, with the field just by, just by doing a little bit more night riding and a little bit more rest or a little bit less, less sleep. Um, and that, that seemed to work for, for a good amount of the time. Um, I got to. So did you go back into race mode? I mean, you were in just hang in and mm -hmm. see if you can make it till Friday mode, but now you're back in race mode and trying to pull in the field if you can. Yeah. Yeah. By, yeah. By the third day I was, I was, I was like, all right, you know, it's, it's kind of past now. So, um, so time to keep moving. Let's, let's see what I can do. <laughs> What was your sleep strategy going in and, and what, I mean, aside from, we know you slept in the Bivia and camped every night, but, mm -hmm. um, how many hours a night were you planning and, and what did you actually wind up doing? Um, my goal was to sleep about four hours a night, uh, just because, um, I don't know, based on what I've seen with longer races, uh, that seems to kind of be the sweet spot for it really for does. People. That's yeah. the number everybody says like four, right. maybe five, but <laughs> seems like the four is the number. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I wonder who started that. Someone's going to have to start the three and then everybody's going to have to adjust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, it is interesting. It does seem like, um, that four hours for long events for, mm -hmm. you know, multiple weeks, that four hours seems to be the number that works for the most amount of people that you can, 
I guess, function as much as you need to. Did you find it? Well, I'm taking words out of your mouth, but is that what, what worked for you or did it not work? Did it backfire? <laughs> yeah, it worked okay. Um, I'd say, I'd say I, I either slept through my alarm uh, more than I expected <laughs> Or completely forgot to set an alarm. Um, so oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> there was one time I woke up and my phone was next to me with like the alarm screen up. So I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, I was close." But I was close. I was always <laughs> there. there. Like, oh. <laughs> 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 so yeah. you got some bonus bonus hours in there, bonus minutes or something. Yeah, yeah. I definitely got more bonus bonus hours than than I had planned. Um, uh-huh. But you, I think does that bother you? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say er, earlier on in the race, I I was completely fine with it because I was like, my body needs to recover. So mm-hmm. just take those hours and, and you know, make it up during the day, maybe. Yeah, that, that was going to be my question. So sometimes if you're that tired, you just need to sleep. And uh, it sounds like you did a pretty good job of listening to your body um, through the process and and uh, and managing it the best that you could in a, in a really tough environment what was it like to to finish if you can put 12 days into words going through everything that you did um what 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 state uh were you in at the finish line um i was about 12 pounds lighter <laughs> and one pound a day yeah yep um, and you're not a big guy for anybody listening uh no I mean, yeah no i yeah, started out yeah. at about 155 pounds yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I felt, uh, I felt a lot weaker. Um, I definitely felt like my, my body had kind of like cannibalized some of my muscles. <laughs> um, over the past two day, two nights, I had only slept for about 20 minutes. Uh, so it was, yeah, I mean, it was incredibly relieving, incredibly exciting to be at the finish. Um, the the welcome was was awesome. Nelson was there. Um, as I rolled up, Nelson was there. My girlfriend Naya was there. A bunch of people were there that I had kind of like been riding with um, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and it was at a uh, at a a bar. Um, the the finish was I forget what it was called, but uh, it was it was just an awesome awesome little spot to hang out for a while um, before yeah. I started all, crashing. <laughs> all of the best races end at a bar. That's yep. <laughs> like that's the East Texas showdown. <laughs> Just like the East Texas showdown. Yeah. Are you proud of yourself? I mean, obviously you didn't make your goal uh, that you had set out. I mean, you had a 10 day goal and a 30, you know, top 30 finish and it was 37 and, and 12 days, but obviously you were dealing with some, some, some shit literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, yeah, what, what you're reflecting on it now and, uh, what do you think? Are you pretty satisfied with that overall? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm really happy with it because there were so many times, uh, during the race, like beginning, um, ladder stages where I was, I was ready to just throw in the towel. Um, but I'm really happy with the fact that I was just like, you know, just keep moving forward, um, regardless of whether it's, you know, as fast as you expect it, as you wanted it to be. Um, I'd say one thing in terms of my mental state, one thing that really helped was getting to checkpoint three. Um, because at that point I was still kind of in the, uh, in like the race mindset. Um, but I had, 
I had slowed down because of, uh, because of stomach issues. And I was like, all right, I'm going to get to checkpoint three. And I know some people are going to be a little bit slower at the checkpoint because they're going to like take their time getting food and stuff. So I'm just going to get there, get my, get my, uh, card stamped and then start moving. Um, so I can, you know, make up the field. Uh, but I got there significantly later than I expected. Um, I thought it was going to be there between like 10 midnight and I got there at four in the morning. Um, and pretty much everybody there, there was a group of about 20 people, uh, maybe like 10 to 20 people that had their, that had their bikes, uh, kind of set up along the, the yurts. And the majority of people were just like hanging out and sleeping. And so I get to the checkpoint, um, I check in and, uh, my girlfriend's there. So, um, that's, that was pretty amazing, uh, to mm-hmm. have her, to have her that, show yo. up. And, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure. I know she, she said she was going to try to make it, but okay. I never had service for like a day and a half or so. Um, so that was amazing to see her. And then, um, and then the volunteer, uh, he was like, Hey, you know, we've got breakfast at five. Um, so if you want to, if you want to hang around, um, you can, you can get some breakfast. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to just like leave. I'd love to spend some time with Naya and breakfast sounds amazing. Um, so I took a 20 minute nap and, uh, and had some breakfast and it was awesome to be able to hang out with uh, a bunch of other riders in the morning, just, you know, talking about our experiences, um, for, from, you know, all the prior days and what we've all went through and, everybody was just enjoying time together, enjoying breakfast. And nobody was like in a rush to, to try to, you know, leave the checkpoint before anybody else. Um, so that really helped with my kind of like change my mindset to just being like, this is rather than like a race against other people. This is, this is largely a challenge, um, just for myself. Um, so, and enjoy what you're doing enjoy the challenge, uh, you know, take it for, for what it is, for what it throws you. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just like, just embrace the ride. Yeah. Good, good advice. My, to piggyback on that, um, it's, it's easy to say that now, but before checkpoint three, mm-hmm. you had a, a lot of struggles and, and, and low moments, I'm sure. Can you put into words, what you did or how you were able to stay in the race and yeah, I mean, how were you able to stay in it mentally, physically, mostly mentally, probably I'm sure. I mean, at this point your body's wrecked and wants to quit, but like, how do you, how do you convince yourself to just stay in it? Yeah. I think the, the thing I can attribute most to, to just like continuing is, is just trying to find the joy in in uh you know being out on the bike and um you know being in those landscapes uh so you know the joy of whether it's it was riding with somebody for a while um there's a a guy named Josh from London uh who I rode with for a while and um really helped lift my spirits uh just being able to ride with somebody else share some stories there was a moment where I was going through, um, going through that, that valley that I'd mentioned that was 60 or 70 miles long. And I had ridden with Josh, um, prior to that, but, um, he kind of, uh, rode away from me for a while and I was nursing a little bit of a bit of a knee injury. So I fell back and I was just taking my time. Um, 
and there was a, a sheep herder that saw me and he was like, woo, as I rode by. And so I just wooed back to him <laughs> and he giggled and uh, then he wooed louder. And so I wooed again. And then we just started howling back and forth to each other. <laughs> so it was just kind of so like good. riding for like five to 10 minutes until I couldn't hear him where we were, you know, just like howling at each other. Um, Did you get that on GoPro? Oh, uh, no, I didn't. That would have yeah. been awesome. Yeah. Well, that one will live in, in your mind and on this podcast, but that's a, yeah, that's a nice moment. <laughs> yeah. So that um, lifted your spirit or just finding, yeah, finding joy just in little interactions like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, during some of the hike a bike sections, uh, I I did some like dancing or skipping up the hill. <laughs> um, Someone yeah. else on the podcast, uh, Nick Marzano, was talking about how he did a dance on the Tour Divide, uh, coming up <laughs> one pass or something. You, if you got to dance and sing, it keeps the well not in Kyrgyzstan, I'm assuming, but in Tour Divide, it might keep the bears away. You know, yeah, so <laughs> make some noise. Yeah, there's some value in singing and dancing when you're on the tour divide. What what's something that you wish someone told you before you went to the Silk Road? Oh, let's see. Um I would say uh I would say learn the language is better. Um put together some put together some uh uh some like flashcards of of like some you know general sayings or general terminology or vocabulary i think that'd be really helpful um because i really you know when it was when it was more remote i would have loved to to be able to um just interact a little bit better with people um there's a point where i was getting to a climb uh where it was i'd say probably midnight um, and I had stopped to, to take off, um, to take off my puffy jacket because I was getting hot and out of nowhere, this guy appears on horseback <laughs> and, um, like the lone ranger. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I was like kneeling down, taking off clothes and out of the corner of my eye, I see like this massive, massive, uh, feature above me and yeah, freak you just, out at first. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I mean, horses don't normally sneak up on people. I don't think they're pretty big and loud. Yeah, and... I had my uh, I had my headphones in, and uh, I was like okay. blasting music, um, uh... <laughs> trying to keep myself awake. <laughs> Wait a second, you said you didn't listen to much music, so that was one of the very rare that times was, that you. Yeah, did. that was one of the minimal times. Yep. Yeah, so just trying to stay awake, using it as emergency to mm-hmm. to stay awake. Do you do anything else to stay awake on the topic? Do you ever take caffeine pills or or cocaine um, or anything? I do. <laughs> <laughs> caffeine pills. Um, yeah, yeah okay. I, I crush up the caffeine pills. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I did have some caffeine pills. Uh, I try to stay away from using it because um, because I crash really hard if I if I start utilizing caffeine pills. Um, so music, if I'm able to, um, I actually really like tea tree oil toothpicks. Um, yeah, because not familiar with that. I mean, I know what tea tree is, but go ahead. Mm-hmm. yeah, they're just toothpicks infused with tea tree oil. Um, they're, they're awesome because, uh, you know, if you're, I mean, I'm, I'm brushing my teeth 
on a daily basis, but with the amount of like crap that I'm eating, um, they, they really help kind of like, uh, kind of clean out your mouth. Um, and the, the tea tree oil, tea tree oil is really like astringent. So, uh, it kind of helps help keeps me awake just because it's, it's so strong. So, um, I do that. And then, uh, like singing or howling at night. Um, yeah. I find that fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why not, man? Have you ever, um, not maybe for bike pack racing, but have you ever smelled, uh, smelling salts? No, no, I haven't. I just got smelling salt like last week. Um, oh, man. <laughs> and, uh, just to try it out, like, honestly, just dumb curiosity. It's just the way I am. I'm like, I wonder what that smells like. Yeah. Um, it's very strong. Um, but people use it for like working out, like weightlifting competitions and stuff to like kind of get jacked before you do it. I, I think, I mean, and you can get, it's just like in a little bottle. Okay. I'm just putting this out there on the Bikes for Death podcast airways. If someone wants to go try it, I think <laughs> I think it could really help. There's no because you know it's the stuff that like you're like passed out or whatever, and they stick in front of your face, and yeah. you cannot not have a reaction to it. It will bring you snap too, you know. Oh, interesting. Um, but I've never heard of anyone using it in endurance sports. They use it in like weightlifting. Is the only uh, arena I've seen people that use it. Um, so anyway, yeah, random tip for me, uh, with very little science to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the bikes or death podcast. Uh, no, but I, I do think it would work. I, I don't, I, you know, I don't do a lot of the racing. Uh, I do the bike packing and sleeping is a part of that. So I don't, I haven't mm -hmm. found myself in a position where I need to be, um, you know, slapping myself or singing or, or whatever. But, um, yeah, uh, we might start selling the bikes for death labeled, uh, smelling salt <laughs> soon for ultra endurance athletes around the world. Well, uh, I wanted to talk to you about ETS real quick. Was there anything else about Silk Road that we didn't touch on that you think needs to be touched on? Um, no, I mean, I, I think we touched on a good amount. Uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. I think it's, it's an amazing challenge. Um, the culture is incredible. Everybody is incredibly welcoming. Um, I, I really liked what Sofian said in regards to, uh, uh, the fact that you know, the Kyrgyz people live in some pretty, pretty, um, pretty tough, uh, conditions and, and they're always going to be going to be welcoming to, um, to kind of like making sure you're, you're warm and comfortable if you're, if you're out in the countryside and, and, you know, just getting to know you better. It was, it was amazing how, how welcoming people were and, and, uh, the kids out there are, um, really hilarious and, uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're just kind of fun to be around. <laughs> yeah. When you go back, um, do you already have plans to go back? Like have an idea when you will, or is it just something that's on your mind after gone, having gone? Yeah. Just something on my mind at this point. Yeah. Will you, do you think you'll do uh, the same route or do you think that you'll just go and bike and tour the area and, you know, immerse yourself more in the people and the culture? Yeah, definitely doing more of a tour. I'm not going to touch a chip ticket again on a bike. <laughs> <laughs> that was a one and done, huh? Definitely. <laughs> well, you did it with food poisoning. Now you got to do it without food poisoning, you know? Yeah, it'll be so much easier. 
Yeah, it's so much easier. Just ask all the other people that did it. Well, yeah, well said. I mean, uh, I'm happy to hear all that. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful landscape. There's no doubt it's an extremely tough and challenging route, the conditions, mm-hmm. the weather, the remoteness. Um, but I like to hear, I, lo- I love to hear about the people and the culture. And uh, it even makes me more excited to go out there. And I hope I get a chance to kind of experience it myself. Maybe we go out there together and do a little media team, huh? That'd be cool. Oh, absolutely. That was yeah, that was my my um, thought after finishing. Like, maybe I'll come back and yeah, do some form of media. Well, we'll uh, maybe. I don't want to be in competition with you. Maybe we'll see if Liam will let us come out and tag along or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, not to be outdone, I think we should talk about the second most popular race um, in the world, the East Texas Showdown. Um, oh yeah, registration's opening up. <laughs> Yeah, registration is open now, now, now. Go and hopefully, hopefully by the time this episode comes out, registration is full and I'm happy and sorry if you didn't get in. So I'm curious, like, I have a couple of questions for you. Mm-hmm. You uh, reached out to me and whenever, like, as soon as I announced East Texas show on this year, like the day it was announced, you're like, hey, do you have a, it was probably like in the first five minutes, you sent me a message, <laughs> you're like, hey, do you have a, a media crew yet? Or, uh, you know, anyone doing a film yet? And I said, um, no, not yet. Wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh I, and so, I mean, it's it's cool. It's super flattering that you came all the way out from Portland to cover our little event. I'm I'm really curious, though, like why, what, what drew you in? Like, what interested mm-hmm. you? There's a lot of a lot of bikepacking races that you could go cover. Texas is far away. It's not of interest from an outdoor recreation standpoint to most people. Um, I'm curious, like, what what about it made you wanted to come and document it? Yeah, I'd say um, largely the the community aspect because um, I think you're really good at at fostering community, um, and the fact that you that you not only focused on like the the showdown or race, but the slowdown as well. That where it's uh, where it's beginner friendly, um, uh, you know, enjoyment friendly. Um, so people could could choose to race or they could choose to uh, to you know have their experience. Um, that, that really intrigued me being able to, to document, um, that variety. Um, yeah. And it was, man, it was awesome. Like the, the people are just amazing. That community was great. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, and I'm not just saying that because it's my race, but other people tell me (laughs) that and I believe them. But I mean, I've been, I've been overwhelmed and, uh, I, I mean, I'm there, I'm feeling the same thing. I'm like, yeah, this is fucking awesome. I mean, just cause yeah. it's my party doesn't mean I can't also like step back and be like, wow, this is, this is cool, you know? And I appreciate that. I, I'm really, really, really glad to hear that that is what attracted you and made it interesting because that is the focus. That is what I hope is our secret sauce is making it community centric, welcoming, uh, easy, not easy, challenging, but easy in terms of feeling welcome, feeling like it's doable, the routes a little bit, uh, more obtainable for a lot of people. And I don't know if you know this, but this year we're actually adding a third event. So we're doing the lowdown, 
which is 170 miles. And it's not a race at all. It's a non-competitive ride with a man. It's not really mandatory, but a highly encouraged group camp spot with bonfire and beers. And then you wake up the next day and you ride, you finish off the rest with everyone. And so we're just doubling down on the community. It's like non-competitive, just come ride, not a crazy distance. Then you can go to the 280 and then the showdown is 400 miles this year. So we added 20 miles and, you know, you push yourself that way. And so, um, yeah, it's, I, I like the idea of creating an event that is appealing, welcoming and cast a very wide net and the cool thing is that when you get all the racy people and all the people that want to smoke weed and smell the flowers or whatever, <laughs> uh, and we all get, and, and, and dude, it's just, it's a great time, you know? Um, so definitely. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. So what, uh, what surprised you about the race or Texas, um, if anything, and it could be surprised you in a good or bad way. It's open. Sure. Um, I'd say, I mean, again, everybody's super welcoming. Uh, I've, I've got a lot of people that I'm still in touch with on Instagram, uh, from the race and a lot of people that were, that were messaging me, messaging me during the Silk Road, um, that I had met. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that was, um, that was really great. I'm, I am really grateful for that. Um, I would say the, the thing that I found really cool was, um, how, the the non-cycling community was um was really receptive to the race and to the to the riders in general like the um the workers at family dollar they were like oh mm-hmm. this is amazing this is so cool mm-hmm. and um sue. curious where everybody was coming from yeah miss sue <laughs> yeah i was i me and her are friends on facebook now like i was just messaging her the other night and she's really? like living in houston <laughs> with her mom she like quit her job of fa- yeah i mean like people are great man that's so cool shout out sue definitely um i had so before i i had seen you when i got to the bullet grill um i just sat down and there was a group of guys that were that were talking at a table next to me um and one of these guys was uh i'd say they were they're kind of like um maybe like in their 50s and 60s and they were one guy was just like, Oh, you know, what are, what are all these cyclists doing here? And, and this other guy, um, started explaining to him, uh, like what the race was, what self-supported bike packing was, um, all from like what he had found out in the, the prior year. And I was like, man, this is, this is really cool to, to be able to see people who are, who are not actually, um, participating in the sport, uh, starting to get like involved and engaged and, and excited to, to kind of like talk about the sport with other people. And, and who you're describing are, uh, backcountry hillbillies, right. also known as rednecks. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean it with all love and respect. I mean, they're great people, but, uh, yeah, I mean, just, this is not their world, man. They live in yeah. the woods. They live out in the country. Uh, this very rural and, uh, it's, it's, it, it that is a part I didn't expect. I had no idea that the community and not just Bullet Grill, but everywhere along the route was going to be so receptive and welcoming. And mm-hmm. like the manager of Berkshire Brothers, which is a grocery store, 
he messaged me on, he found me on Facebook somehow and messaged me after the event. He was like, dude, I wish I knew we would have like done whatever you wanted and all this stuff. And so next year they're going to be like helping out. And, um, it's just, I, I mean, even down to like national forests, like the, um, Oh, your film, you'll like this. So I was on the phone with, um, the U S national forest service because it goes through two, uh, two national forests, Davy Crockett and Sam Houston. Um, and we are permitted. That's like a big thing for me is to be like a good example, especially in Texas where public land is so limited. I want to do things the right way. I want the community to want us there. I want, um, cyclists and bike packers to be, um, a good thing for the area. I want, you know, I want, I want this to be a positive thing because if we want to grow bikepacking, if we want to grow cycling and all this, and we need those positive interactions, we need, you know, the hillbilly at bullet grill to, to be like, Oh yeah, that's one of those guys. Yeah. That's cool. Oh no, man. That's that, you know, that, those guys are right. Like 300 miles, man. You know, that, you know, totally, we need yeah. that. um, and I, I'm, I think that's so cool. Um, and the U so I was talking to my guy over at the forest service and we're getting all the permitting going for 2023. And I said, did we send you? And I meant to send it to him and I failed, but I was like, did we send you the uh, film that they did on the showdown? He said, no, there's a film. I said, yeah, it's like, it's really good. Um, he's like, yes, please send it to us. He's like, we would love to promote this event as a way to recreate, um, outside and in the national forest. And oh, that's awesome. that from a government official in charge of, you know, public lands in Texas where we're less than 3% is huge mm-hmm. that they're excited and they're wanting to help. I mean, they want, they want this to be there, which uh, I hope also speaks to this community at large that, and that's what, and that is what I told them whenever I went to the forest service, I said, these are the kinds of people that you want recreating on public lands. They're respectful. They understand leave no trace. They understand respecting wildlife and nature and, and all the things like the things that, and, and I believe by and large, that is the case. I don't think you can put yourself in these environments and ride through them and not care about them. I think it's probably nearly impossible to do that. Um, and, and luckily everybody's been bought in. So, um, it's been a really cool experience and, yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited about it. I can't wait for 2023. Uh, so what is like after Silk Road? What do you think your approach <laughs> to cycling is going forward? Uh, do you know like do you have some other maybe not events but trips or something that that you're like looking forward to or thinking about? Yeah, I've never um I've never really done the touring side of things. Um, so and and my uh my girlfriend Naya and I have never really um, done any, any like big bike packing trips together. Um, so I'd like to, I, I'd really love to, uh, to do like an international trip with her, um, whether it be, uh, like Portugal or, um, her, her father's side is, is from Bolivia. Um, so that's, that's something we've kind of talked about a little bit riding through Bolivia. Yeah. 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 Have you done any other international travel besides Kyrgyzstan? Um, just, uh, just the race in British Columbia and, um, and, uh, I've traveled in, in Baja, Mexico a little bit. Yeah. I just got my passport, um, last week, um, wanting to do more. Yeah. Yeah. I want to do, I mean, personally, but also for the podcast, like 
Yeah. I really want to go cover Silk Road. I want I want to go to the Italy Divide. I want to go check out Baja Divide. I mean, I you know, there's a lot of lot of stuff out there. I read a quote recently. Um, the world is a book and those who don't travel read only one page. And I'm like, well, I want to read the whole book. I don't oh, want to I read like just that. one page. Yeah. Yeah, pretty good. Definitely. Yeah, pretty good. Uh touring really appeals to me especially in an internet on an international trip it just seems like it forces you you're not in a car you have to interact with people and and mm-hmm. all that you know it just seems like a great way to to do that and have that kind of experience yeah and for me in terms of like the photography and videography side of things that it, it merges a lot better too if i want to be able uh, to document the trip that's very true. Yeah. So you could do, uh, ooh, you could be one of those. Uh, you could do a bike packing travel blog or vlog or whatever, something like that. And uh, yeah, I definitely yeah, love to do sure that. You're, yeah, I would too, but I'm. I don't want to edit video. Uh, that's yeah. where you. <laughs> that's where you lose me. Understandable. <laughs> you have to record a lot of video, and it's just it's a lot of work. So I have a lot of respect for y'all video people. All right, man. Well, uh, we got chatty. I was I was pretty excited about Silk Road. I'm not gonna lie. I, I I really would like to get out there, and so I appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience. And um, yeah, congrats on finishing it uh, with really hard circumstances. It's considered maybe the hardest bikepacking race in the world. I don't know who makes those decisions, but it's definitely in the conversation. Uh, so congratulations, man. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate the time as well. This has been awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll catch you down the road either. You got to come to Texas or I'll come to Oregon, but we'll uh, we'll have to cross paths again here soon, hopefully. Definitely. Oh, yeah. All right. Take care, buddy. Thanks. We'll do. You too. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode and a huge shout out to my friend, Seth for coming on to share his experience. Before we wrap up today's show, just a couple of quick reminders that the East Texas Showdown is going to be opening up 36 more spots this Saturday, September 10th at 2 p.m. For more information, head over to bikesordeath.com and click the ETS link at the top. And we will see you in March. Also, don't forget, if you want to get yourself a fresh pair of Ombras, Ombras is making it easy for BOD listeners. Use the code BOD20 at checkout and get $20 off your order and send $20 to your favorite podcast. Before we wrap up today's show, I'd like to leave you with a quote. This one comes from Jack Kerouac. And it says, Because in the end, you won't remember the time you spent working in the office or mowing your lawn, Climb the goddamn mountain. And I hope Jack wouldn't mind if I said, climb that goddamn mountain on your bike. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being here today. It is always a pleasure. Until next week, you know what to do. Go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you sounds they made kept you afraid in the morning you packed your bike memories forgotten from the previous night
or merely folklore. Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless. Your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself, just a few more miles. Bikes. Oh, death. Bikes. Bikes.